today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 12, verses 35 to 46. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over this household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to drink and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our Sunday morning service, especially want to welcome those of you who might be visiting us for the first or second time at the invitation of a friend or coworker, especially considering if you are investigating the Christian faith. If you're someone who is a journeying on a spiritual quest to discover if Christianity is what it claims to be, and specifically if Jesus is who he says that he is, namely God, to whom we center our lives upon, we hope and pray that our time will not only help you understand why we Christians believe such an idea, but perhaps even persuade you from even believing it and embracing it yourself. And so without further ado, would you bind your, bow your heads one more time so we can ask for the Lord to bless our message for today. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us as you said that you would when those who are summoned by your son's spirit would come and to sit at his feet to hear his word speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray that our minds would be illumined, that our souls would be refreshed and renewed, and that our hearts would be filled with a deeper conviction of truly living for your glory and for your glory alone. Oh God, would you help us now to focus in on everything that you want us to hear today and banish whatever distracting, discouraging, or even frightening thoughts that rummage through our hearts and our minds. Oh God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let me start off with a question. As you look back in your life, in your past, have you ever given up on something that later on you wish you didn't give up on? Have you ever looked back into your personal history and you find that you were a quitter and that you wish you did not quit on that thing that you quitted? I know many of us have these things. I know I do. One particular thing that I think about where I quit that I wish that I didn't was my requirement by my mom to learn the Korean language. Growing up, my mom forced me to go to those Saturday morning Korean schools. Anyone in here went to uh, KSL, Korean second language class, right? Some of you went to ESL. I went to KSL growing up, okay? And 
I, for years, I would tell her, Mom, please, don't send me to Korean language school. Please, please. We're living in America. This is not South Korea. I'm never going to go to South Korea. You know, we need to embrace the culture that we live in now, Mom. Come on. Let's get with the program. Please, please, please. And for years and years, she's like, no, no, no. You got to learn Korean. You are a Korean person. You need to learn Korean. And then after years of me constantly complaining, and I tend to be persuasive with my complaining words, at around age 13, she was like, all right, enough. If you really don't want to learn Korean, John, if you really want to just let go of your heritage, then you can quit. But do not come back to me years from now when you're a grown adult and say, mommy, why didn't you make me go to Korean school? Do not come back saying that you regret your decision. And I looked at her and I said, mom, Oma, <laughs> I will never ever regret that decision i promise oh how wrong i was i regret that decision every day even now especially as a father why well it turns out my oldest daughter my oldest child kara who is now about eight years old she has a bff and you know who her bff is it's a little girl sweet little girl who lives across the street from us who goes to school with her a girl by the name of eunice and her primary language is what Korean. She can speak English, but she's very fluent in Korean. Of course, being BFF, she wants to connect with her best friend, and she would go over there to have play dates. They would come over here. And this is what I realized. One day, as I was just doing my work in my office at home, I heard Carol just speaking gibberish. She was like, I was like, what are you doing? Are you praying in tongues or something? What are you doing? And then every now and then, she'd go, and then it dawned on me, oh my gosh. This poor girl is pathetically trying to speak Korean, right? It was such a pitiful thing to watch. And who was to blame? Me, her mom, right? We don't have it in us. We don't have the resources in giving her what she desperately wants, the ability to learn Korean. Why? Because I was unfaithful in my task of learning our mother tongue, learning the Korean language. How about you? Do you have anything in your life, in your past that you gave up on that you wish you didn't give up on? Right? You know, many of us don't spend a lot of our times regretting over our past mistakes, and we don't ruminate over all the things that we wish we didn't quit so easily. And that's a good thing because Scripture says we shouldn't live in our past, and yet the Bible does say that we should learn from the past. We should learn from our failures, our mistakes, such as the things that we quit, the things that we gave up on, things that we shouldn't have given up on, or as the way the Bible refers to it, things in areas where we have been unfaithful in. One of the things that the Scripture tells us over and over that we are to live life of faithfulness after all it is one of the fruit of the spirit that paul speaks of in the book of galatians right one of the things that mark us as followers of christ is that we are not quitters we do not give up we are not unfaithful people and yet what is so unfortunate is that so many in the world and in the church we find unfaithfulness being rampant in the people that make up both the world and the church why well as we continue our sermon series that we just kicked off, which is the parables of Jesus, we're going to see why unfaithfulness is so rapid, and we're going to see it in the context of a story that Jesus is going to tell that mark us in such a way that identifies why faithfulness is so important to God. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, why faithfulness is important. Number two, why faithfulness to God is hard to maintain. And then finally, how faithfulness can endure why it's important, 
why faithfulness to God is hard to maintain, and finally, how we can endure in faithfulness. Okay, let's jump right in. First, why faithfulness is important. Let's read our passage again, starting in verse 35 to verse 36, and it reads as follows. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Jesus wants to teach his disciples of why faithfulness is so important, and the way he does this is by telling a very intriguing story about about a bunch of servants who are waiting for their master to arrive from this wedding feast. Now, we don't know whose wedding feast this master is attending. It could be his own wedding feast. It could be the wedding feast of a family member, a close friend. You know, New Testament commentators are all over the page on that matter. But one thing they're all on the same page on unanimously is that this particular wedding feast took a very long time to end. I said this in a previous message, but in the ancient world, wedding feasts were known to go on for long periods of times. Wedding feasts could last all day. It could go on for a few days. Some wedding feasts have been known to go on for a whole week, right? And because there was such a wide range of duration of when wedding feasts would go on and when it would end, there was always a level of uncertainty when servants like the ones in our passage needed to be vigilant, needed to be faithful in making sure that they were prepared for the arrival of their master. Now, with that in mind, you begin to understand why faithfulness is so important to Jesus. And let me explain. Typically, when people read this parable, when they focus on this story, usually they put the spotlight on the servants and they focus on the mindset and the perspective of the servants and extrapolate lessons and morals and principles that we are to take away. But I don't want to do that today. Instead, I'd like to shift our attention on the master himself. Focus our attention on the perspective and the experience of the master and then extrapolate principles that we need to desperately apply to our lives right now. So let's do that. Look at it from the standpoint of the master. In this story, in order for this master to be able to go off to this wedding feast, this great party, he needed somebody or a group of people that he could depend on. In other words, this master, in order for him to enjoy some of the most wonderful things of life, like a week-long celebration, necessitated him depending on the faithfulness of other people. Am I right? And that principle also applies to every single one of us. You and I, if we want to experience some of the most wonderful things that make life joyous and wonderful, it necessitates us depending on the faithfulness of other people and conversely so. If other people around us want to enjoy that the things that life can offer them, they need to depend on our faithfulness as well. And if you think about it, this is true. When you look at all the various categories of life, for example, if you want to have a wonderful marriage, you have to be faithful to your spouse. Your spouse has to be faithful to you. If you want your children to have a happy childhood, it requires you as a parent to be faithfully present and involved in your children's life. If you want to have a great group of friends, it necessitates you being faithful in your loyalty to them through thick and thin, through trials and tribulations, and they need to be that with you. If you want to have a fulfilling career, You need to be faithful to your job description and to your duties, just as your coworkers need to be faithful to the duties and responsibilities that they have to the organization. Oh, yes, indeed. Life teaches us that faithfulness is the means of living the blessed life, which conversely also means unfaithfulness is the pathway of living a life of cursedness, right? Faithfulness is the means of getting access to the blessings of life, 
unfaithfulness is the means of living a life that is cursed. And this is something we need to desperately hear. Because we live in a society that constantly degrades, minimizes, and overlooks the significance of being faithful. I mean, just consider the status of marriage in America. One out of two, they say. One out of two marriages will end in divorce. And yet one of the main reasons for that is still what? Adultery. Spouses being unfaithful to one another. And we don't even have to get that serious because the frustration and pain of unfaithfulness even trickles down to even some of the most mundane things of life, right? Such as what? One of the things that you will discover about me as you get to know me more personally is that there's a type of people that I really cannot stand. You know who they are? Flakers. You know what? Flake, not Lakers. <laughs> Flakers. I really cannot stand people who constantly flake out on me particularly, right, or my family. Have you ever been around a flaker? You know what a flaker is, someone who promises to do something and don't do it, someone who agrees to a certain thing and they don't follow through, whether it's making an appointment to meet up with you, whether it's a turn-in assignment that you give to them. Flakiness is one of the things that make life so dark and miserable. I'm convinced of it, right? And there is no place in the world that really exudes flakiness in the city that we call home, our beloved New York City. I came across an article in the New York Observer entitled, So Sorry to Do This, Flakiness Epidemic Sweeps Digital New York. Listen to what the author says there. Quote, there are different kinds of flakes, of course, and the overextended workaholic is just one. Other types include the cool, sexy flake, Julian Casablanca, from the Strokes, Richard Katz from Jonathan Franzen's Freedom, the benign stoner flake Seth Rogen in Pineapple Express, and the misanthropic flake, your friend who never seems to leave the house. All of them are united by being reliably unreliable. They're hard to get in touch with. They make plans they don't keep, and they stay home despite promises to show up. All told, they appear to put minimal effort into some of all or all of their friendship, and as a rule, they make the people they're flaking on feel unimportant just the context he's saying these are the various flavors of flakes that you find in our city now i know some of you are hearing like oh come on pastor john lighten up yes so what if people flake out every now and then what if i flake every now and then i mean you're not implying that my flakiness could lead to something catastrophic like me cheating on my spouse or or my children abandoning me because i wasn't president of life you're not making that kind of assumption are you well maybe i am you know, every now and then when I hear that kind of defense that people give, I think about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 in the 10th verse where he says this. If you are faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you will not be honest with greater responsibilities. Do you not think it is unreasonable to conclude that a little unfaithfulness here, a little unfaithfulness there could actually build up into something that is so severe and catastrophic like being unfaithful to your spouse or you being unfaithful to your children to the point where they don't want to be around you when you're older in life and you have more time for them, but they have no time for you? Right? It's been said that wars are won by winning battles and battles are won by winning conflicts and conflicts are won by winning skirmishes. You know, I came across a recent interview that really encapsulated this idea recently. There was an interview of a Toronto professor of psychology by the name of James Jordan, and it was such a fascinating interview, just kind of interacting with his thoughts. And at one point in his interview, he said this, and the title of the video clip, you can look it up, is called Jordan Peterson Tells You to Clean Up 
your room. Listen to what he says here. To put the world in order, we must first put the nation in order. To put the nation in order, we must first put the family in order. To put the family in order, we must first cultivate our personal life. We must first set our hearts straight. My sense is that if you want to change the world, you start from yourself and work outward because you build your competence that way. Don't be fixing up the economy, 18-year-olds. You don't know anything about the economy. It's a massive, complex machine beyond anyone's understanding, and you mess with it at your own peril. Instead, begin with your own room. So can you even clean up your own room? No. Well, you think about that. You should think about that because if you can't even clean up your own room, who the heck are you to give advice to the world he hangs around with a lot of 18 year olds as a college professor and he deals with a lot of naive overextended self-righteous college students right any college students here no offense (laughs) but what is he saying here he's saying look don't underestimate those little acts of faithfulness because you can build up on that in such a way to where not only you become a reliable person but you can be a source of tremendous blessing and change the world especially when you're faithful to something more substantial more significant than just your dirty room say maybe god right but conversely and this is more relevant to us he would also say do not underestimate those little acts of unfaithfulness because those things can fester and grow like a cancer to where not only you become someone who has a dirty room you become someone who has a dirty heart you become a wicked person to where not only is your room in disorder not only are you unfaithful to your room but you can be unfaithful to god now some of you are like wait a minute how do you go from being unfaithful to your room by keeping it dirty to being unfaithful to God. That's a big leap. What about all that's in between? How do you get from something so superficial to something so significant, negatively significant? Well, that's a great question. And to answer, let me go to my next point. Why faithfulness to God is so hard to maintain. Let's skip on down and read verse 45 and 46 of our passage where it reads as follows. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Here. In this portion of the story, Jesus identifies the reason why it's so hard to maintain faithfulness to God. And what is the reason? Well, in order to answer that question, we first have to know what the reasons are not, right? What the reasons are not. And we begin by asking, why did this wicked servant think what he did in verse 45? Why did he assume, why did he come to believe that his master would be delayed in coming? Is it because he just happened to overhear his master talking to one of his friends and he tells his friends, hey, I'm planning to be out there for a while. And this servant ended up just suffering his master's prerogative of changing his mind. Is it because his master had a tendency of being gone for long periods of time and he just assumed that this would be no different? Well, as plausible as those reasons are, they are not the reasons that we see in our text. In fact, our text tells us there's another reason, and we can begin to extrapolate that reason when we consider the punishment the servant receives when his master arrives. What kind of punishment does this guy receive? Verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will what? Cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Yeah, whoa. Whoa. What is going on here? This master 
sounds like a vicious, cold-blooded murder. Why in the world is Jesus portraying this master in such a disgusting, vicious, violent way? Well, here's the thing that you have to remember. Whenever you're coming across the parables of Jesus, any New Testament scholar will tell you is that one of the things that Jesus employs in his teaching is this literary feature known as the hyperbole. The hyperbole. Now, what in the world is a hyperbole? A hyperbole is simply an exaggerated statement to make a clear point. A hyperbole is an exaggerated statement to make a clear point. And Jesus is known of constantly using hyperbolic statements throughout his teaching. I mean, one famous one that he does in the Sermon on the Mount is where at one point he says, Hey, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, gouge it out. Now, of course, we know Jesus is not being literal here. Did you guys know that? Just so you know, don't be thinking of cutting your hand off, all right? I don't want any of you guys walking in here looking like a pirate, okay? That's not what he's saying, right? He's simply trying to make an exaggerated statement to make a clear point, which in that situation is do whatever you need to do, cut out whatever you need to cut out of your life so that you don't fall into sin. If you have a heavy addiction to pornography, take that computer out of the house. If you're an alcoholic, don't go that familiar route that you normally go to that passes the bar. Do whatever you need to do so you don't fall into sin. That's simply what's going on there. That is hyperbole, and that is what's happening here in verse 46 when he says that the servant will be cut into pieces. I don't know why I'm doing this, right? But that's what he says. He'll be cut into pieces, right? That's a hyperbolic, hyperbolic statement for Jesus to make a clear point. But the question is, what point is he making? The point is simply this. This wicked servant was taking a high risk, an inexcusable risk for thinking that his master would be delayed in coming. That's simply the point. Again, this wicked servant made the inexcusable, foolish, idiotic risk, right? A risk that he was culpable for by assuming and thinking that his master was delayed in coming. Now, how do I know this? The reason why I know this is because of what Jesus says about the other servants in verses 47 to 48. Listen to what he says there as he talks about these other servants besides this wicked guy. He says, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And for him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. What's Jesus doing? He's talking about these other servants who suffer varying different severe forms of punishment based on the varying responsibilities that they had to their master. Now, by including these other servants, Jesus is trying to say that this particular wicked servant who ended up getting cut up, that servant knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was risking severe punishment. He knew better than to think the way that he did. And yet he somehow chose to believe that belief that he had in verse 45, that his master was delayed in coming. In other words, this wicked servant knew that by thinking the way that he did, he would be deserving of the severest punishment possible from his master. He knew that by thinking that his master would be delayed in his return and acting in according to that thought, he was risking death. So here's the thing. If this servant knew, right, that he was really taking on an unnecessary, stupid, foolish risk to where he was culpable for thinking that way, to where he was risking his own death. Why in the world would he think that was the case? Why would he think that his master would be delayed in coming when he had no reason to believe so? Well, you read the answer when you read his behavior in the absence of the master in the middle of verse 45. What does he do? 
He begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Ah, there it is. This servant thought what he did. Why? Because he was itching. He was yearning to be able to enjoy a certain lifestyle, to have an experience that he could never have in the presence of his master. He wanted to feel like the master himself, right? He wanted to beat. He wanted to rule. He wanted to conquer. He wanted to get drunk. He probably wanted to sleep around, right? And he justified this by holding on an irrational thought. He rationalized his stupidity with an irrational thought by thinking, Oh, even though I know my master could come at any moment, I'm going to convince myself. I'm going to kind of be in denial. I'm going to suppress this rational fear that should normally keep me from behaving this way. I'm going to ignore that by having this irrational, foolish belief that my master is not going to come. This guy was so yearning to live a certain lifestyle that he saw his master's absence as the only time, the only opportunity for him to have these experiences in order for him to enjoy this certain lifestyle, right? You see, the reason why he was not afraid of his master's punishment, even though he should have known and he should have been, is because he was governed by another fear that was eclipsing that fear. It was this fear of not being able to experience and enjoy what in his mind was once-in-a-lifetime unique enjoyment and opportunity of life that would never come around again. So he needed to risk it all, right? You only live once kind of thing. What am I talking about? I'm talking about FOMO, right? If you've been here at NCF, you know that's a very familiar word that I like using because it's such a constant struggle that is plagued by our society. FOMO, the fear of missing out. And just in case for those of you here who have no idea what that is, let me read to you an article where a journalist describes his own struggle with FOMO. Listen to what he says. It's approaching 1 a.m. in the morning, and I'm glued to my phone. The television is on, the laptop whirring away, and I even got Radio 4 on standby. Well, you never know when the shipping forecast might get exciting. If anyone should ask, I tell them I'm a night owl. The truth, though, is that I'm suffering from FOMO, the fear of missing out. I can't rest for the thought that something important might happen while I'm in the land of Nod. FOMO is the fear that everyone else is having more fun, more excitement, and more rewarding, anecdote-worthy experiences than you. Whether on the school bus or at the far end of the dining table, it's something we've all experienced. You know, I read this description. I thought to myself, that is the wicked servant fear. That is his fear. That is the fear that is greater than the fear he should have of his master's punishment. That was why he couldn't stay faithful to his master. Because he's so terrified that if he is faithful to his master, he is going to forfeit. He is going to miss out. And he is going to give up on once in a lifetime amazing experiences that a person like him could never get. It was too much of a risk for him to not indulge in. It was too much of a risk to not risk his master's wrath. And believe it or not, this is why so many of us Christians have a hard time being faithful to our God, to our master as well. Because we're so terrified that we're going to miss out if we faithfully devote our lives to our master. That the unique once-in-a-lifetime experiences that are currently out there now that we are so terrified won't be there later on because we're so busy being faithful to God, we're going to lose it. We're never going to get it again, and we're going to be living with regret. You see, by giving us this story, Jesus wants to warn us 
to not fall into the folly of this wicked servant. He doesn't want us to assume that the best things in life will compete and therefore cause you to forfeit the great things that this life can offer if you stay faithful to God. God does not want us to look at him and his world that way or your duty to him in that way. He does not want us to fall into the trap and the delusion of this wicked servant. And he does this because he knows this is so prevalent among his people. Do you guys know how you can practically figure out whether or not you're suffering from this sinful mindset? Do you guys know how you can know whether this is you, if you're becoming this wicked servant? One of the best ways that you can figure out or diagnose yourself is see if you're becoming like this guy is if you carry this mindset by saying, I'll always have unlimited time to be faithful to God later on. On the other hand, I don't have as much time to enjoy right here, right now, these once-in-a-lifetime opportunities that can only be available to me here in this city, here at this age of my life, here at this stage of my life. If you're one of those people who thinks, you know, let me be faithful to God later when it's more acceptable socially. Right now, let me just have fun. Let me just live and have my fill of this world. And then when I've had those experiences under my belt, then I'll go back and then I'll give my life to God because we just assume the master will be delayed. I'll have unlimited time later on to be faithful to the Lord. If that's where you're at and if that's how you operate in your day-to-day Christian living, I'm sorry to say, you're becoming the wicked servant if you're not that servant already. And you expose yourself to such dangers and consequences that you should not be exposing yourself to. You should know better. And so here's the question. If you find yourself gravitating towards that or if you're already embracing that, How do you come out of it? How do you avoid it? Well, the answer leads me to my final point, how faithfulness can endure. Read with me all the way up to verse 37 and 38. Jesus says, blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Here we see, according to Jesus, Jesus, the only way we can be faithful and maintain that faithfulness to our God, we need to be constantly reminded of God's faithfulness to us. Let me say that again. The only way that we can endure and maintain faithfulness to God is when we're constantly being reminded of his faithfulness to us. Take a look again at what he does in verse 37 and 38. A shocking twist to the story. When the master arrives, is it the master that gets served by the servants? No, it's the master who serves the servants. How crazy, right? Here is the master partying his, his head off for days, maybe even a week, and he's tired, you know. He needs a vacation from his vacation kind of thing. But instead of just demanding his slaves, hey, get me this, get me that, rub my feet, get my food, he says, sit down, all of you. Let me serve you. Let me bless you. You know how I said in my first point, that faithfulness is the path of living the blessed life, that is what this master is demonstrating. Because his servants were faithful, they now have access to the most blessed life. Where ironically, they get to be treated like as if they're the master. Meanwhile, the servant who wickedly tried to be the master ends up severing suffering punishment. How ironic. The very thing that the wicked servant tried to get for himself, the experience of what it's like being the master, the master himself gives voluntarily to his servants who were faithful. This is a picture. It's a picture of what? It's a picture of the gospel. 
What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, even though you and I are unfaithful to God, to where we deserve nothing but to be cut up, right? God, in his love, comes to us as Jesus Christ, and he gets cut up for us, right? He gets crucified. He gets speared. He gets whipped with his flesh hanging off him. He's cut up for us, symbolizing what? Him paying the full penalty of all of our sins, past, present, future, all of our unfaithfulness to him. Isn't that astounding? I mean, think about that. We are unfaithful to God because we don't want to miss out on what we think is the best possible life, the unique experiences that this life has to offer. But God is faithful to us by living life that none of us, you know, would want to be a part of, a a life that we would have no problem missing out on, him suffering a humiliating death on the cross. Why? Why would God do this? Ironically, for the same reason why the wicked servant was unfaithful to his master. He doesn't want us to miss out. Jesus suffered all that he does so that you and I will not miss out on the greatest life, on the greatest experience, on the greatest bliss and joy that reality has to offer. Eternal life with God. Eternal life with God. See, when you understand that gospel and you appropriate that by believing, yes, I am a wicked, unfaithful servant, but God loved me by becoming my savior substitute and I ask for his forgiveness and he promises me his forgiveness and he gives me the promise that I will have the best life that I will never miss out on because he rose again from the dead. If you embrace that, you find the power. You find the endurance. You find the willingness to be faithful because now you know You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about when it comes to living your life of faithfulness to God. You see, when you get to that point, you become aware there is no one like Jesus. There is no one who will be as faithful to you as Jesus. There is no one who will love you to the extent that Jesus loves you. There is no one who will sacrifice as much as he sacrifices for you. And when you get to that awareness, you know who you become? You become only Jesus' people. Only Jesus' people? What are you talking about? What is an only Jesus' people? Consider these words from Pastor Mark Buchanan. He describes what only Jesus' people are like. Hoping for something is very different from hoping in someone. The difference is not one of degree, but of kind. To hope in Jesus is categorically different than to hope for anything he might do for me or for others. I do hope that Jesus will do some things, reverse my male pattern baldness, protect my wife as she drives to town, or help my friend find a wife and a job. I hope for some of these things, but my faith does not rest in them. They are in some ways the sentiments of faith, the feelings and wishes that arise from having faith, but they are not what grounds or gives rise to my faith. We can hope in Christ, but if that hope is only for the here and the now, if it is strictly earthbound, we are in the deepest sense hopeless. If the fullness of our hope is no more than a divine miracle brokered in the temporal realm, our sickness is cured, our ruptured relationships mended, the prisoners set free, the famished fed, our lives are ultimately pathetic, pitiful. Because hope then is only for something I might get, not hope in someone I know. We hope in Christ not just because he feeds us or heals us or routs our enemies. Indeed, sometimes he doesn't do any of that. Sometimes he turns us away, empty, belly, cancer-ridden, defeated. No, we hope in Christ because of who he is, because he has the words of eternal life. He is the source of eternal life, the life of greatness, the life that you would not want to miss out on 
Here's my question, NCF. Is that you? Are you an only Jesus Christian? Which is simply another way of saying, are you a faithful Christian? Are you faithful? This time I want to end today's message by inviting you to think about some practical next steps. And here they are. If you're here today and you're not a believer, but you are considering the claims of Christ, and even today's message has persuaded you to where you feel that the master of the universe, God himself, has been incredibly faithful to you to where now you respond to wanting to be faithful to him. I invite you now, pray, call out upon him, and he will come, and he will be the master who serves you. Embrace him as Lord and Savior, and come talk to me, come talk to Pastor James. We would love to help you in figuring out what your next steps should be as you grow in your newfound relationship with Christ. Number two, take some time tonight. Do it tonight, because if you don't do it tonight, you won't do it later on. But take some time tonight, ID some of the things that compete with or hinder your faithful commitment and devotion to God. What are the things that you're so worried that you're going to forfeit? What are some of the things that you're concerned that you're going to miss out on if you go all in in your relationship with God? Just write that out because you'll be surprised how much you harbor in your heart until you actually write it out on paper. And then share what you identified in that second question, and ask your Oikos group brothers and sisters to help you come up with one or two practical ways how you can be more faithful and keep you accountable in that regard. Okay? Come up with it. And if Oikos can't help you, then you know, post it on Facebook. Maybe somebody, I'm just joking, don't do that. Right? What can you do? How can you help your brothers and sisters figure out ways in which they can be more faithful to God? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see what it means to be more faithful to you. Lord, these stories, these parables that you have taught your people throughout the generations have really opened up and illuminated what is in the darkness of our hearts. And we pray that instead of being terrified and therefore be in denial of the darkness, instead we will come to you who is the light so that you can banish such darkness away, that we would see that there is hope for sinners like us, and that even though we can be unfaithful and most times are unfaithful, we can look to the servant our God who was faithful to us so that we can have hope, that we can look at the one who was cut up on our behalf so we can be fully restored and have peace. Oh, Lord, give us this grace, especially here and now in this city, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.